0: Mind you. I know this social distancing, the masks, uh, hey, this is this is what we have to do. I know it's an inconvenience to have to go to the bathroom and go all the way out, but that's what we have to do. And we would ask that you would please go along with the program. Uh, we didn't pick it. We didn't choose it. It's the outlay of the building. It's what the CDC wants. And you know what? We want to be you know, compliant. We want to be good witnesses. And so... Um, as yeah, uncomfortable and, and maybe inconvenient as it is, please, um, you know, just do as the uh, ushers and the servants uh, lead you to do. It would be greatly appreciated. I had so much to share with you guys. I, mean, I think after all this time we haven't been together, I I, I thought, Lord, what, what, do I, what do I say? What do I share? I mean, I could just talk about all, but I, I want to, God, what it is that you want me to say to them? What do, you, what do, what do they need to hear? And and I hope and I pray that this is what the Holy Spirit wanted, and it's because this is what I'm going to talk to you about. Uh, it's uh, turn to Ephesians chapter four, one through three. Chap- Ephesians four, chapter uh, Ephesians four, verses one through three. And the message is walking together in a world in conflict. Walking together in a world in conflict. We are now, this morning, living in a different world than we were a few months ago. We are living in a nation quickly becoming characterized by division, conflict, lawlessness. And these things breed many other ungodly behaviors. But the church has to stand together. But in order to do this, we have to understand the new and changing executive orders to protect our unchangeable religious freedom. And as of late, our nation has been crippled, ripped apart by confusion, despair, chaos, and violence. First caused by the pandemic... Then topped off by the protesting and the rioting and the racial divide. We're living in a time of uncertainty. But there's one thing that I am certain of. There is one who can make sense out of the nonsense. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know how it's all going to turn out. Knowing that, there's no need to fret. The one thing that we know to be good and true is the gospel of Jesus Christ. For churches to be equipped to shepherd their congregation through this upheaval and be a light to their community and the world during this time, we have to understand the new and radical force Driving the executive orders to protect our right to this, our religious freedoms. Right now, we are witnessing the conflict in the world among each other. Uh, but conflict between Christians is one of the most destructive forces in the church. When there's, no, when there's division among each other, it has destroyed churches. It destroys life, And Paul knew this. Paul expected tensions and he expected conflicts in the body of Christ. And he was concerned about that. And that's why he exhorted the uh, Ephesian church in this text. And this morning, it's an, exor- it's an exhortation to you and me. And I think, as I said, Paul knew this. Paul expected tensions and conflicts in the body of Christ, and he was concerned about that, thus the exhortation. And like I said, this is an exhortation to you and me this morning. And that is, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4.16. Unity among us. And when I say us, I'm talking about Christians, believers. Unity among us doesn't mean that we all have to think the same and act the same in every matter. But it does mean that we should get along with each other. Not fighting and not being divisive. Not allowing our emotions and our opinions to dictate what I say and do. And I and I saw a lot of this as people grew tired of being shut in and wanting the church to start. And, and I agreed a hundred percent. But then there started to be the, the conflict. Well, you know what? The church should open now. I know it shouldn't, and yes, it should. Well, you know this and this and, and you know what? It, God's in control. God knows what to do, when to do it, how to do it. And we are his sheep. And we're to follow what God is doing. And so, you know, Paul, Paul said, again, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. And especially when it's a non-essential to the faith. My opinion, your opinion, it, we, we have them. But if it is not an essential to the faith, that's all it is, is an opinion. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Second Timothy two twenty three through 25 and we need Paul's exhortation to Timothy today because there's a lot of divisiveness and grumbling in the world. So much so that it's impossible for people to be friendly with each other. We are a divided society, a divided nation. And if the church of Jesus Christ is going to fulfill its calling, then Christians have to live in unity together. We can't change the world. As long as we, the church of Jesus Christ, is split up and divided. If we're disunited, we really don't have anything to offer or say to the world because disunity makes us weak. And it causes society to point at us and say, look at those guys. They laugh. It makes us ugly. There's an amazing power in unity if we put our differences aside and we bring together all the different factions into a single Christian unity, then we can have an effective influence on society the way we're supposed to. We're to be the salt of the earth. Paul clearly sees the reality of friction between Christians. Any moving body is going to have friction, and Paul saw that, or else he wouldn't have exhorted them, the Ephesian church, to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. There were clearly evil forces at work in the early church that were trying to, that was trying to divide the Christian body, trying to break them up into splinter groups, and it's still happening today. Satan never stops. He has no boundaries. And for Paul to stop them, he, en- he urges them to endeavor to keep the unity. The church hasn't always behaved itself the way Paul describes here. But what Paul describes here is the way that the church was meant to and can be. Differences of opinion and personality differences are still the main cause of friction between Christians today. But God has given us the ability to deal with it through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Can we, Christians, take the truth of God's work and work it out in our own lives? Are we able to stand and to walk through this devil-driven world in, in conflict in a way that pleases God? Now, here in our text this morning, we now come to the hands on part of Ephesians. That is the earthly behavior of the church. And here the church is pictured as a new man. And the new man is to make himself known down here. God is invisible. The Bible says God can see man at no time, He's, he's a spirit, He's invisible. We are members of the invisible church, and we are to make ourselves visible to the world. And the only way people can see your faith and my faith is by the the way we live. And we are to be outgoing people, and we are to get the word of God out, and the Holy Spirit is talking to save people right now. What's laid out in this letter is for those who are saved and who have heard the word of truth. If you're not a Christian this morning, you just sit back and you listen. And you learn what God would ask of you if you're going to become a Christian. And then when you look around, you will know whether or not the Christians you know are living the way God wants them to live. So let's begin now in chapter 4 with verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. First of of Paul's prison epistles. Paul says, in view of everything God has done for the believer, which Paul mentions in chapters 1 through 3, he says, I beg you now to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And when he says, I beg, he's not saying, I suggest. He's not saying it's a good idea. He's not saying, you know, I have a strong feeling and a strong desire for you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This isn't just a simple request. Paul isn't just saying, pretty please. It is a plea. It is a pleading or begging. Paul wasn't suggesting that you walk worthy. He wasn't giving his feelings to the Ephesians. He was giving them God's standards. And if they didn't apply, if they didn't apply them, they couldn't live in a way that properly exemplified a child of God. And when Paul exhorted them, it wasn't a take it or leave it. Situation. Paul couldn't rest until all of those who were given to him for their spiritual care walked in a manner worthy of the calling within which they were called. And Christians shouldn't resent a pastor's pleading. They shouldn't resent his exhortations, his convicting, his rebuke. Like the ones that Paul ministered to. He suffered Paul suffered continual birth pains because he had such a great desire for the spiritual growth and maturity of those that he ministered to. Paul said, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when, dear friend, I hope all is well with you and that you are as healthy in body as you are strong in spirit. Some of the traveling teachers recently turned and returned and made me very happy by telling me about your faithfulness and that you are living according to the truth. I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. That's what blesses a leader. That's what blesses a pastor. When people say, man, those people really love God. They really believe the Bible. They live like they believe the Bible. Not just pastors, but every Christian should have a loving concern to beg and to plead with others to obey God's word. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 136 Rivers of tears gush from my eyes because people disobey your instructions. Do we hurt? Do we feel bummed out because we see people disobeying the word of God? We should. Like Paul, you should have a passion to beg your fellow Christian to walk in a manner worthy of their calling to be everything that the Lord wants them to be. And the word walk is used many times in the New Testament. It refers to daily behavior, the way I walk every day, my behavior every day. It it talks about day by day living. Paul emphasizes the unity of the Christian walk, uh, what it's supposed to look like. In other words, after after a person repents of their sins and and they turn to God, they are to prove that they have changed by the way they live, now the things that they do. They are to have good works befitting of repentance. Acts 26.20 The Christian who walks in a manner worthy of the calling with which he's been called is a Christian who lives every day, Marching, uh, ama- ama- matching his call as a child of God. He lives every day matching his call to a child of God. His normal everyday living matches his spiritual position. The calling with which you were called is the sovereign, redemptive calling of God. Paul said, beloved of God, you are called to be noticed. You are called to be saints. Separate, sanctified, set apart. God wants us to be reflectors of his own holiness because he had specially set his love on us. I am, you know what? Am I truly born again of the spirit? Are you truly born again of his spirit? Are you truly washed from guilt before God by the precious blood of Calvary, the cross? Do I really love the Lord Jesus? Remember, the litmus test was, if you love me, obey me. Do I really love the Lord Jesus enough to obey him? That I am one of God's loved ones, if I do, who are called to be saints. And true sainthood is Christian separateness. And that is separateness from our unsaved past. I no longer do those things I did before. It is to be separateness from worldliness. I'm not like the world. I'm in it, but not of it. It's, it, it my, my sainthood, it, it, my separateness is from all known sinful ways. And I'm separated to an outward confession of Christ and an inward fellowship with Jesus and a daily usableness by God. Are you, am I usable by God every day? Is my service acceptable to God? And the first business of every Christian is this separation from the world, myself, and to develop holy character. And understand that, you know what? We're not called to be preachers. We're not called to be teachers. We're not called to be missionaries, authors, full time evangelists, or public Christian leaders. Paul said we're called to be saints. You know what that means? We are called to total separation. And Christianity puts its main emphasis on character and not service. There's a lot of service done that doesn't have the Christian character. Done in the flesh. In other words, we're called to be something before we try to do something. And we're not saved by our character. It is Christ's character that saves us, not ours. And no one can save us but Jesus No one can be saved without Jesus Christ. That's why our calling is a high calling. It's a heavenly calling, Hebrews tells us. It's a holy calling, Paul says. And that's why the faithful, responsive Christian is determined, determined, made up their mind to walk worthy of the calling in which they've been called. How am I called to walk? Paul tells you in verse 2. He says, With all lowliness. In gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Here you have the four graces of unity. This is how we are called to walk. And Paul describes authentic Christian-like character in exact words. There has to be unity before there's blessing. These, now, these graces don't come natural. We are not born with these graces. These graces are gifts of the Holy Spirit given to the born-again believers in Galatians 5:25. And you know what? They begin in Jesus. The source of them are in Jesus Christ, and that makes them supernatural. If they're a gift of the Spirit, that makes them supernatural. We are to walk, Paul said in lowliness. This involves the sinner's confession of sin and a deep realization of his unworthiness to receive God's abundant and marvelous grace of which we don't deserve. Humility is the foundation of all the other characteristics. Without humility, I I can't do the rest. The sincere practice of the one leads to the practice of those that follow Walking in lowliness is a thankful sense of dependence upon God. It's the opposite of pride and conceit. The position of humility is a man looking upward. God's work can't be done the world's way. God called us to humility and his work can only be accomplished through humility. Humility. Paul said, we are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. Prayer, the word of God, those are the weapons of our warfare. Fenelon said this, humility is the source of all greatness. Pride is always impatient, ready to be offended. He who thinks nothing is due him, never thinks himself ill-treated. Somebody else said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking nothing of yourself. Pride doesn't give in easily to truth. Humility means putting Jesus first, others second, and self last. Esteeming others higher than yourself. He said, walk in gentleness. After lowliness, he said, walk in gentleness. Humility always produces gentleness. And meekness is one of the surest signs of humility. Humility. True humility. You can't have meekness without humility, and you can't have meekness with pride. Gentleness is more than modesty and weakness. It's power under control. A meek person is normally quiet, peaceful, and easygoing, and never retaliates. He's not aggressive, unforgiving, or self-defensive. It's that unresisting, uncomplaining state of mind. It enables us to put up with the faults and the injuries of others without getting irritated or resenting them. Jesus is the perfect example. And without contradiction, he could say of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart. David said in Psalm eighteen thirty-five, he said, your gentleness has made me great. I love that verse. Your gentleness has made me great. And his life was not a bed of roses. When David looked back on those years of hardship and danger, he didn't see all of that. He didn't see the hardness of his life. He saw the gentleness of God. That's power under control. John Calvin said, hard times should never make us hardened people and adversity should never make us abrasive. There's a lot of abrasive Christians in this world. The meek person responds willingly to God's word no matter what the requirements or consequences. Hear that? The meek person responds willingly to God's word. No matter what it takes, no matter what it requires, no matter what the consequences are. Then Paul said, after walking in lowliness and then gentleness, he said, walk in long-suffering. A third attitude that characterizes the Christian's walk is patience, a result of humility and gentleness. It literally means long-tempered. It's the quality of a person who is able to avenge himself, yet refrains from doing so. The patient person endures adverse circumstances and he never gives in to them. This is the enduring and untiring spirit that knows how to outlast pain or aggravation. It's the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. In other words, we shouldn't have a short fuse. We have way too many temperamental, touchy Christians in the church of Jesus Christ. We need to be like Jesus. Who, when he did not retaliate, when he was insulted, nor threatened revenge, when he suffered, he, notice, he left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. This is a strength that's Learned. Remember, these characteristics don't come natural. They're gifts. They're supernatural. And this is a strength or strengths that are learned only at the feet of Jesus. The opposite of this good quality is the short temper. Listen, the patient Christian, all right, the patient Christian accepts God's. Plan for everything. Everything. He's sovereign. He's in control. He calls the shots. Going back to all things. And all things means all things. Not some things. Or the things that I like. All things. Work for his good. That means he's working for my good. And my, my care and my welfare is at the center of God's heart. He has the hope and he has a future for me. And he wants me to do well. This person, who, who the patient Christian, accepts God's plan for everything without questioning or grumbling and complaining. He doesn't complain when his calling may be less noticeable than somebody else's. Or he doesn't complain when the Lord sends him to some dangerous or difficult place or, or, or to do some difficult task. And then lastly, Paul said, "Walk. Our walk should, could consist of bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. This is the practical result of a patient spirit where we go on loving and respecting others in spite of their faults and weaknesses. Because we all have them. We all have them. But you can't experience this grace of bearing with one another in love, you know, apart from love. Paul said in Ephesians 6, 24, May God's grace be eternally upon all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Having patience with a regard, uh, having, a, having patience in regard to the errors or weakness of anyone. And then Peter tells us that this kind of love covers a multitude of sins. Now, when he says it covers a multitude of sins, it doesn't mean that he's, he's hiding them or tr- making excuses for to cut, the word cover means to throw a blanket over the sins of others. It's not to justify the sins. It's not to excuse them. It's to keep the sins from becoming any more known than necessary. I you know how people love to talk about and spread the, the, the news about other people's sins. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? Now, where to cover it. Let God deal with it. Paul's purpose for talking about these qualities here isn't to lay out a pattern of behavior towards men. This isn't, this is a, isn't a pattern of living towards, to, towards the men in the world. This is a pattern of behavior for you and me, for the church of Jesus Christ, his saints. The world doesn't have the means of, of living like this. We do in, in the Holy Spirit. But if we can't live it, how in the world are we going to show it to those outside? Paul's purpose, again, for talking about these qualities, isn't to lay out a pattern of behavior towards men in general. He's concerned about the the certain tensions and the strife that come up within the body of Christ in the church. Harmony inside the church is the standard for the world's harmony. But it can only be kept by all Christians who are living the qualities that are mentioned here. And I, and I believe you guys saw it all in the last three or four months. This world needs this type of behavior. There was ungodliness and violence and cold-blooded murder and stuff going on that I can't say I've ever seen in my day. The spirit of lawlessness that Paul talks about when the Antichrist comes. That's just a preview. Preview. Can you imagine? And then lastly, as we close, verse 3. He said, Paul said, okay, after you walk in all lowliness and gentleness with long suffering and bearing with one another, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We, every Christian, is responsible for keeping unity. And it should be the painstaking and constant concern of every Christian. Paul's not talking about organizational unity that's encouraged by denominations in in, in the worldwide church movement. Paul is talking about the inner and universal unity of the spirit that every true Christian is bound by to other true Christians. I am bound by the word of God to live this for you. And you are bound by the word of God to live it for me. That we live it for each other. Paul makes it clear. This is the unity of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of all of us. It doesn't come from the outside. It comes from the inside and it's demonstrated through the inner qualities of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love, the four unities of grace. And understand, spiritual unity is not and cannot be created by the church. We can't create it. We don't make it. We can't create it, and we can't make it happen. Paul isn't asking us to create this unity. It's a unity that's already been created by the Holy Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22. We are to keep it going. When Paul said, endeavoring to keep the unity... The word endeavoring means to make every effort to do one's best. It means sparing no effort. It means to do whatever I have to do to continue to have this unity between me and my brothers and sisters. It's saying if others want to quarrel with me, I have to do everything that I can not to quarrel with them. Paul's exhortation to the Christian In closing, this unity is personal and social and the Holy Spirit gives it and keeps it. If there's unity, then we will have the bond of peace. The reason for strife on the outside is because there's strife on the inside. If a Christian cannot get along with God, how's he going to get along with other people? When God's peace is ruling our hearts, then we're going to have unity. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. A peaceful attitude and behavior binds Christians together, where discord and quarreling, break up and divide their hearts and their affections. These qualities and the supernatural unity they bring are probably the most powerful testimony that the church can ever have because they're so opposite of the attitude and the disunity that's in the world. No programs or methods no matter how well thought out, no matter how well put together, no matter how well you carry it out, can open the door to the gospel in the way an individual Christian can when they're really humble, gentle, patient, forbearing in love and showing a peaceful unity in the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful word, God. These beautiful, holy characteristics, God. Father, help us to not forget, Lord. Father, these things are necessary, God. They're just, a, they're just another part of the Christian's life. Again, God, we are called to be something before we do anything, God. Because our witnesses ruined, God, if we don't have the character of Jesus Christ. If we don't have the, 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 the attributes of Christ, God. Then we go out and we do it in our flesh. And our flesh is weak and it's ugly. And it's hurtful. Father, I pray this, this morning, God, that. If there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That, Lord, your spirit. Has spoken to their hearts. And they see the beautiful characteristics of the spirit-filled believer versus the empty coldness of those in the world that don't know you, Lord. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior but the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart and you realize, I I need Christ. I want Christ. Just raise up your hand real quick and put it down. Raise up your hand and put it down. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace, your tender mercies, Lord. And we pray now that, Father, you would bind us together, Lord, through your word and Power of the Holy Spirit. You'd bless our time now as we partake of communion, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 13 14, Paul said this as he closed out the 13th chapter, he said,